flesh that has its affections for God and for others. David, in Psalm 51, recognizes this as well. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. The prophet Ezekiel shows us what we most desperately need as sinful people. He speaks to the Lord. The Lord says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. See, the people of Israel, they had the law of God, but their hearts were not right with God. One of the most harrowing things I read in Scripture is this statement. This people honors me with their lips, but in their hearts they are far from me. So the Bible tells us, by regeneration, the disordered soul is set right. This great change means, as the scripture expresses it, the renovation of the soul after the image of God, in which self-awareness is removed by faith, self-love by subjection and obedience to the will of God, self-seeking by self-denial. In order for us to have life, we need God to give us a new heart. This is only possible through Jesus Christ. Scripture says that if you believe in Jesus and confess with your mouth that he is Lord, you will be saved. So what we're talking about today is those whose hearts have been regenerated by the forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ. But maybe for you, that's the question. Maybe you need to just tune out the rest of the sermon and ponder that point. Examine your heart. Where is your heart connected? Who owns your heart? Where are your heart's affections pointed? Do you persist in being the master of your faith? You see, the Christian is that person whose heart belongs to Jesus Christ, whose singular hope is in him and his return, whose affections are greatest for the one who died for us. Christian is that person whose life is subject to the Lord of creation. Does that describe you? Is your heart here to God? Do you desire Him above all things? If so, how do you keep your heart? That's what we'll talk about today. Paul says, keeping the heart is the constant care and diligence of such a renewed man to preserve his soul in that holy frame to which grace has raised it. I don't intend to suggest that we can do it. In fact, what we're going to see is that we need God to do this in us. Only God can do this in us. You know, as we think about a regenerated heart as we're going into the Christmas season, first of all, it's not Christmas unless the Elmer family has watched the Mother Christmas Carol. <laughs> I highly recommend this film. Michael Caine is seven years of Scrooge, really. And the Muppets, too. But you look at the contrast between Scrooge the moneylender and Scrooge the reformed man. This is the life of faith. This is what it means to have a regenerative heart. How do we keep 
Proverbs 4.23 once again. Keep the heart with all vigilance, but from it flow the springs of life. There's some dangers that can befall our hearts. First of all, it should be very sobering for us that the man who wrote the words, keep your heart with all vigilance, failed to do so. 1 Kings 11 testifies about solving this. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as the heart of his David, of David his father had been. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth and after Milcom, and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord. And the Lord was angry with Solomon, because his heart had turned away from the Lord. Friends, we must guard our hearts from turning away from the Lord. Many things will pull at our hearts. How will we respond? That's one of the dangers, that we would turn our hearts away from the Lord. The second one is that lawlessness would cause hearts our hearts, our love to grow cold. Jesus, in describing the end times and the age of the Jewish people, he said, lawlessness will be increased and the love of many will grow cold. We live in a time when lawlessness is increasing. All manner of sexual expression is permissible. It's seen as a good, a moral good to pursue pleasure for yourself. All kinds, we don't even use sin as a category anymore. What's most important is that you get yours. Lawlessness is increasing. And I think if you look out, we can see that one of the results is love growing cold. People, instead of giving of themselves to others, sacrificing for the, for the love, for the sake of love of others, instead of Taking a lesser place to do for others their intent on their own good. So the second danger, the lawlessness around us, we cause our love to grow cold. If we give into that, if we ourselves decide our pleasure is what's most important. The third danger is that our hearts would harden. Our hearts would harden. I do have to Pastor Jason, he took all my points last week in this sermon. I Christian love, so thank you. <laughs> but Psalm 95 gives us this warning. If you hear his voice today, do not harden your hearts. As the people at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test, though they had seen my work, though our hearts have been regenerated, though we've seen God act in our lives, though he has done mighty things for us and blessed us, do not harden your hearts on this journey of faith. Maybe there's something that you need to Maybe there's something you feel like God has not answered for you. Don't harden your hearts. He has a purpose. Don't let expectation of God doing for you harden your hearts. So those three dangers, 
turning away our hearts from the Lord, lawlessness causing love to grow cold, the temptation to harden our hearts. Let's not lose heart, but let's guard our hearts. How can we do that? Paul gives us the way. When we talk about the heart, we're talking about the basic orientation of the person. We're talking about a person's desires, emotions, attitude, will, the affections. The heart is what moves you in a direction. The heart is what leads you. Yes, the intellect is engaged. But the heart is what moves you in a particular direction. Where are your affections pointed? What do you desire? What are you after? What most matters to you? The implications of this, I think, are both far-reaching and daily. Wherever my heart's affections are pointed, it's going to affect where I am in five years. It'll affect what I do tomorrow morning. Where is your heart? So Paul gives us three things. He says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and all things give place. Now in talking about this, in talking this way, Paul is really reaching back into the book of Psalms. These three things are part of the work and move of that book, of the congregational response to God's mercy by the people of God. Here's some quick Smatterings from the book of Psalms to let you hear this. Psalm 64 10. Let the righteous one rejoice in the Lord. Take refuge in him. Let all the upright in heart exult. Psalm 97 12. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous. Give thanks to his holy name. Psalm 95 again. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us take a joyful voice to him with songs of praise. Psalm 104, enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise, give thanks to him, bless his name. Paul had read Psalms well. Psalm 84, blessed are those whose strength is in you, O Lord, whose heart, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. O Lord God, thus hear my prayer, give ear, O God of Jacob. Rejoicing. Giving thanks. These are part of what God has always intended for his people. So, as we look at these three things, one thing I want to mention, this as Paul gives this admonition, he's not just talking to us individually. Sometimes in our scripture we read you, but it could be singular, it could be plural. This passage is plural. So Paul's talking to the body of Christ. And one of the things I believe he intends is that we would do this together. As often as we meet, we would rejoice together. We would pray for one another. We would bear one another's burdens. We would give thanks together. This is meant for the body of Christ together and for us in our lives. Paul says rejoice always. Do you find that difficult? I had a friend in Nicaragua, and this guy is joyful. I mean, we would play basketball and he would be giggling. It's almost ridiculous. And Nicaragua is a place, with the first year we were there, the power went out every day at 5 o'clock, so we bought lost milk. And sometimes you just drive around in a car because it's so hot and turn on the AC. I mean, it's not an easy place. 
But my friend exuded joy in the midst of the trying circumstances. There's just always kind of problems in your life. And if the car doesn't start, the tire gets, goes flat, the power's out, you know, someone doesn't show up, like they said, all these things just seem to always happen. But my friend, and, and what was clear was his joy came not because of his circumstances, that was pretty obvious, but it was because of his relationship with the Lord. Now the other side to that story, maybe that comes a little naturally for my friend. It didn't come naturally for his wife. She struggled with infertility. He adopted two children, two Nicaraguan children, and walked through a tough journey of uh, what's, uh, uh, what's been identified as kind of a reactive disorder in adopted kids. Finally, they had their own uh, child, but they were constantly underfunded, constantly facing struggle, constantly facing trials and challenges in this partner. And I remember visiting years after we had moved away, and you could see like their, their vehicle was in poor condition, their, the house was kind of more bedraggled than the typical dust and ant infested Nicaraguan home. There was just, you could see the weight of years weighing on them in their marriage. But she also saw a smile on her face. We knew because we needed friends and walked with them, we knew some of the challenges they faced but you can still see the joy of the Lord. For her, often more a choice is something she had to really reach for. For him, a little more natural. Rejoice always. In the Philippians passage, I think Paul anticipates an objection. Really, Paul? Yes, again, I will say rejoice. But notice he says, rejoice in the Lord. So Paul's not saying that we rejoice for the circumstances of our lives. We don't, he's not suggesting that we find joy in the things that are happening to us when suffering and pain and trials come and they do come. What Paul is saying is that we rejoice in the Lord. You see, our stories have a glorious ending. Paul in other places writes that the, the trials of now cannot compare to the glory that we so we can rejoice in the Lord, no matter what our circumstances are. Pastor Jason last week noted that the Greek words charis and kara, which are grace and joy, share a common root. Our joy is rooted in the grace of Jesus Christ given to us, the greatest gift that we have. That's the wellspring of joy in our lives. And no matter what we face, eternity stretches out before us starting now. Ultimately, this joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who is the seal of our salvation. The Holy Spirit who has been given to us to help us walk this life of faith and keep heart. Rejoice always, Paul says. Then he says, pray without ceasing. I have another friend who is the pastor of Oscar First Congregational in Massachusetts. And he's a southern boy. So every, July, every January 15th, he's complaining about the weather. And his congregation loves to point that out. 
But it, it's hard pastoring in that context. But I'll tell you one thing I really appreciate about my friend. You cannot call him without getting prayer. He's in that general store in that small town in Massachusetts, and you'll see him with a hand on his shoulder and his head down. And I'm sure everyone in that town knows they're going to get a prayer if they interact with him. Because he prays without ceasing. He believes the word of God. He knows that God hears prayers and he prays and prays and prays. And he doesn't wait. It's a great thing to remember. Instead of saying, I'll pray for you, pray now. In our Philippians passage, Paul says, In everything, by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. Prayer leads to peace in our lives because it establishes trust in God. You know, it's interesting. Paul, in his prayers for the churches as he writes his letters, doesn't pray that their circumstances would change. And that these churches were going through hard times. The church at Philippi, the church at Thessalonica, they were going through persecution. But Paul doesn't pray that their circumstances would change. Listen to his prayers for the church at Philippi. I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. And I assure this, he who began a good work in you will bring us to completion. And it's my prayer, love, that your lives will be easier. No, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may be pure in the blameless of the day of Christ. I was reminded of that this week. I started to think, maybe my prayers need to change. You see, prayer leads to peace, not because our circumstances are necessarily going to change, but because it establishes our trust in God. Jesus, when he taught us to pray, he, he taught us with some of these uh, truths that are, that are very important for us this morning, I think. In Matthew 6, he's teaching his people to pray, and one of the purest things you know and then we'll remember. It says, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? He says, the Gentiles seek after all these things, but your heavenly Father knows that you need them. So he says, when you pray, do not keep up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think they will be heard by their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows that when we pray to God, we can have peace because it establishes our trust and dependency on God. Jesus told a parable, and he started it like this. Luke records it like this, I should say. Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. This is the parable of the widow who went persistently to the judge. And the judge, being neither godly nor kind-hearted, dismissed her time again and again and again. Until finally her persistence, 
I'll send to reply and say, if she's just going to keep coming up, might as well grant the position. If that's what an ungodly, unjust judge would do, how much more our Heavenly Father? That we can trust Him with the things that we care about the most, that we can trust Him in the areas that we feel the most need, that we can depend on Him, that we can trust that He's working in our circumstances to change our hearts for His glory and our Paul says, pray without ceasing. In Ephesians, he reminds us, pray at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. We rejoice as a fruit of the Spirit. We pray in the Spirit. It's our regenerate hearts and the Holy Spirit with us that bring these things forth. So if you're sitting here today and you're saying, hey, rejoice always, <laughs> pray without ceasing, that's hard. I agree. You have to depend on God. Last night, give thanks in all circumstances. Something our, our family has experienced is we've had lots of moves over the years, and one thing I learned was that the way we talk about life's experience makes a huge difference for kids. So my wife and being very honest and forthright would talk about how all these moves felt like instability. It wasn't wrong. But then you hear the kids, our life's unstable. <laughs> and I'm over here like, no, it's an adventure. <laughs> I think giving thanks does the same thing. It characterizes what we're going through. It's the perspective that we bring. Are we attuned to the things we have in God? in Christ, or are we attuned more to the things we lack? Paul says give thanks in all circumstances, not for all circumstances. And our thanks is that the Lord is present with us. We can be thankful because the Lord is near to us and is with us in all things. So you might be there, sitting there today, you might be hearing all this and saying, this is hard to do, to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, to give thanks in all circumstances, I agree. Paul concludes his admonition. He says, the one who calls you is faithful, he will do it. You know, as I walk this journey of faith, one thing that I've become aware of is that often I am not able. But what I can furnish is the desire to do it. And so a lot of my prayers recently have been, Lord, my heart doesn't want to change my heart. Lord, I don't feel like rejoicing. Change my heart and my mind. I don't want to pray right now. Help me to pray. I don't see the things to be thankful for. Help me see them. Where are you this morning? Do you have peace in your soul? Are you able to rejoice? Can you pray and trust God to give you what you need most? Are you thankful? Today, in just a moment, we're going to sing again 
for the final time in the service, there's going to be people up at the front to pray with you. If today there's something lacking, if you don't feel that peace, if you don't have it within you, in your soul, by the Holy Spirit, if you're not, if you find it hard to rejoice, if you find it difficult to pray, if thanksgiving doesn't come flowing from your don't you come and pray for the Lord. Don't leave the day settling for less than. Don't leave the day with a gap. Don't leave the day without a lack. Let me pray for us this morning.